This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jean Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today is Dr. Susan Klang with her new book, Dancing the Dharma, Religious and Political Allegory in Japanese North Theater. It was published earlier this year by Harvard Asian Center as a volume of the Harvard East Asian Monograph series. Uh, Dr. Klang is a professor of Japanese literature and culture at the University of California, Irvine. So this book discusses the theory and practice of allegory in no place of medieval Japan. No is a kind of dance drama that has been practiced since 14th century Japan. They usually adopt stories and themes from classical tales and myths and poetry. And as Susan argues, they also pay very careful attention to the historical context of each play through allegory. So welcome, Susan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I know you have been studying null plays for quite a while, and you have written before on allegory. Uh, what aspects of null plays intrigue you so much, and how did this study of null and allegory emerge and evolve? So, so first of all, you should know I'm one of those great examples of someone who didn't know anything about Japan before I ended up teaching English in Japan for two years. I knew I, I barely knew where Japan was. I'd taken one or two classes in college, but basically, I spoke no Japanese, and I got a job teaching English in Japan by accident. So I didn't start learning Japanese until I was 24 or 25 years old. So it is possible to do this. <laughs> um, most people nowadays, they start in high school or it's, you know, the latest in, in college, or they come from a native language background. But, um, but I, a, a couple of weeks after I arrived in Japan, um, I met someone at a coffee shop, um, an American, who was very, very interested in, in no theater. And he invited me to go see a no play. And he went two or three times a month to see no. And so I said, sure, why not? And I went along. And because at that time I was very interested in modern dance 
and modern art. I was also had a very strong interest, I should say, in medieval religion and literature. So it was a kind of strange combination. But because I was so interested in, uh, in modern dance, it did not bother me even slightly when I went to see a no play that, in fact, I understood nothing of what was going on. I had like a little synopsis of the play, but beautiful costumes, gorgeous dance movements, um, you know, in really interesting syncopated, almost jazz-like music, that fierce otherworldly flute. Um, and the other thing that I really found enthralling, well, it wasn't enthralling exactly, but I love to draw. And for long periods of time, in a no play, when the, the, the chorus is chanting or something else is going on, the characters, the actors are immobile on the stage. They don't move for a long period of time. So it's great for drawing. And I think for that reason, whereas most people get bored in no, most Americans or Europeans, English speaking people who don't know anything about Japanese culture, they get very bored. And I didn't get bored because I was drawing. And so, and also, as I said, I love modern dance. So I was not bothered at all by not really understanding what was going on. I just loved the spectacle and, and the, the rich spectacle of it. Um, and I kept going back and the, to draw and to listen and to watch. And the more I went back, the more interested I got in it. And I started trying to find out about it and read about it. And that's how I got interested in no, really. Um, I would not have told you, believe me, it would be the last thing that I would have told you in college that I was going to end up spending my professional life on. Um, so after I, I left Japan and went back to New York City, I worked in the art world for a couple of years. I, was a, um, I worked at the Whitney Museum of Art. Um, I worked for the Japan Society, um, going around and interviewing professional artists um, in New York City. And then at a certain point, I decided that I didn't really want to do modern art, that it really wasn't what I was interested, that I really didn't want to do this. Um, and I started looking around for uh, graduate programs. And I ended up going to Cornell University, where Karen Brazel was. Um, and I went for two reasons. One, they gave me a year of studying Japanese intensively, which obviously I needed. Um, and then Karen Brazel was the foremost no professor. Um, she was really very much into performance, but she was the no, the foremost no professor um, in the United States. And so I felt very privileged to be able to go and get to study with her. And I had thought maybe I would get a master's and then go someplace else and do art history. But it turned out that I loved no so much. And it integrated so much of what I liked about no, about Japanese culture, the music, the art, um, the dance. Um, and then it turned out to have just extraordinarily interesting literature, like the literary aspects of no turned out to be right up my alley. Um, weird, esoteric cults and <laughs> strange initiations, which is what I loved about medieval European uh, religion as well. I was very into Gnosticism. Um, and, uh, and very complicated punning structures that you had to spend a lot of time interpreting. All of this just like rang my bells. I was just like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> um, and so that's how I ended up being a, um, being a, a, a no scholar. And I Went back to Japan and on a Fulbright and studied with Mitani Kunyaki at Yokohama Shiritsu Daigaku, Yokohama University, um, and spent a, a year studying commentaries with him. And then Teriyama Shuichi, um, who was a professor in, in Kobe, came to Cornell um, and spent a year uh, there, there on a Fulbright. And he also worked with me on commentaries. And that's how I was actually able to do the relationship of commentaries and, 
and no. And I should say the reason why I got interested in commentaries and no is that the it was just timing. Um, Ito Masayoshi published his uh, three-volume collection of no plays, um, the Yokyokushu. He published it right around the time that I was beginning graduate school. And um, my first year of taking classical Japanese, my uh, my teacher, Karen Brazel said, I want you to translate Kakitsubata, which is, you would translate it as the iris. Kakitsubata is a kind of Japanese iris. I want you to translate Kakitsubata, and I want you to translate it using Ito Masayoshi's uh, Yokokushu. Um, and uh, Ito Masayoshi was the first person, the first scholar, Japanese scholar, to really try to show how this group of medieval allegorical commentaries, which developed in the 13th and 14th century in Japan, had been used to write no plays. And nobody had previously paid any attention to it at all. Um, it was just like they didn't exist. And he showed how these commentaries were appearing again and again in the plays. And they are especially central to the play Kakitsubata. And that's how I got interested in the problem of allegory um, and in the problem of allegorical commentaries and their relationship to know was through translating Kakitsubata and writing a very, very long uh, paper and allies in Kakitsubata. And that became the central chapter of my dissertation. So, um, like I said, I went back to Japan in the Fulbright because nobody knew anything about allegorical commentaries at the time, really. I went back to Japan and I studied the commentaries Mitani Kunyaki and again with Terashima um, uh, Shoichi. Um, but uh, again, it was it was a crazy thing to have done. None of the commentaries were were annotated. None of they, it was just completely bonkers that they even attempted it. But my dissertation ended up being five hundred pages, right? Because I was, I felt like I had to do the development of the allegorical. Com I, first, I had to do what is the problem of allegory in J in Japanese literature. Then I had to do the development of allegorical commentaries. Then I had to do how do the commentaries show up in no plays? And then I had a bunch of translations. Um, and obviously, 500 pages is too long for a book. <laughs> so my dissertation advisor said, split it up. You're going to do a page. You're going to do a book on development of allegorical commentaries, and you're going to do a book on the, the effect of commentaries on the no plays. So I did manage to get the book on the development of commentaries written in a timely fashion, at least in time to get me tenure. <laughs> and so that was published in 2003. But in 2002, um, I had my I had my first daughter, and in 2005, I had my second daughter. And somehow it took me until this year <laughs> to get the second half of that dissertation published. And in fact, I expanded it an enormous amount. The, the book as it is published now is nothing like what the dissertation, I mean, the only thing that really remains from the dissertation is that central chapter on Kakitsubata. Um, but otherwise, uh, it's much, much, much uh, expanded, um, including um, work on uh, plays related, not well, the central thing about Kakitsubata is it's related to Tales of Issei and the commentaries on Tales of Issei or Issei Monogatari, which is a 10th century um, poem tale. And then, uh, but I expanded my, dessert, my, my, my book to include also commentaries and plays on the first imperial poetry anthology 
uh, the Kokin Wakashi. I think that answers your question, right? <laughs> yes. Well, that's such an inspiring story. Um, I, I think even now there are a lot of um, uh, non-Japanese speakers who go to Japan and uh, be be attracted, be intrigued by elements of the Japanese culture, usually popular culture. Some some might be interested in no jewelry kind of stage performance as well, and they are always jokingly referred to as weebs. Mm-hmm. But it's it's just so inspiring to see how this um, love for these elements can turn into a lifelong career. It's and- very interesting. No one else that I knew in Japan that I was with in Japan at the time with um, the. It, nobody else followed this path. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely went down my own, you know, primrose path <laughs> for sure. Yeah, that, that definitely takes a lot of determination. Um, yeah, especially since my Japanese. And that's the thing is, of course, now I, I read classical Japanese extremely well. And my spoken Japanese is still, it's okay. But it's still not what it should be, considering that I've been doing this for 40 years. Um, and that's just because I spend all my time reading. Um, and I, I have gotten to go back to Japan on a number of occasions. Um, so I'm not saying that I didn't get to do that. But that's always like a, just a slight bit of. <laughs> but, you know, so it's like I, I've met Japanese scholars who were specialists in, you know, Shakespeare. And, you know, it's it's like if I if I try to sometimes when I'm speaking, they're looking at me like. Are, are you saying gazooks? <laughs> you know, it's that kind of response. Like you're, 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 you're using some kind of bungo esque, you know, thing that you shouldn't be doing because you. Read <laughs> yes. Well, that's. Um... But no, it's it's it's, <laughs> it's 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 a it was a, it's been a wonderful career. I cannot complain about it. I've enjoyed every moment of it. Yeah, that's the advantage of it. So uh, for readers who might not be so familiar with Nolp plays, can you give an overview of what Nolp play is and how it developed through the centuries and more importantly, how it connects with literature? Okay, well, we can try to do that. Um, I talked a little bit about like my first impression of No, and it is this amazing combination. Well, first of all, it's not spoken at all. There's no spoken component of it, right? So it's very different from, it's more like a musical than you know than a play, but it's nothing like musicals that you think of because it's it um, everything. It, it's more like opera, actually. Let's say it's more like opera in the sense that it combines chanting and dance and music. Then the music is contrapuntal. It's not exactly. It's not syncopated, um, <clears throat> and an extraordinarily dense poetic text. Right, gorgeous, gorgeous costumes. Um, very, very simple stage. They all performed at an extremely simple stage, just a bare, it looks like the uh, an outdoor performance stage at a, in the temple. Um, there's just a very simple backdrop of a pine tree. Um, it's, uh, they have got m- the most basic of, of props and the most basic of larger props that would indicate, for example, um, a tomb or a temple or, um, you know, the, just very, very, very simple, but at the same time, so elegant and so beautiful. Um, and uh, so that's, and it's also the, 
the place that I'm interested in especially, which tend to be what, what are called dream vision no, um, they tend to also be fairly spare in terms of the characters. There's one main character um, usually. Sometimes there's a secondary character that's attached to the main character. And there's one interlocutor. Um, and the main character is called the stay, and the interlocutor is called the walkie. Um, oftentimes the walkie is a traveling priest who's just happened by a shrine or a temple or some special place. And a local person appears um, and it turns out it's a ghost or it could be a deity, but it appears as a local village person. And then in fact, it turns out that they are this ghost who is needing help from the traveler. Um, they need their prayers to be released from some attachment, deep, passionate attachment to the past. Either if they're a warrior, right, it's their death. You know, they, they died in battle and they need help getting out of the warrior hell. If it's a beautiful woman, often a beautiful woman, they're attached to some long ago lost love. And in order to get free of that attachment, um, they reenact the past for us. And the reenactment in itself seems to be cathartic, um, plus the prayers of the priest, um, a combined. Um, and they are hopefully, but not always, released from their attachment. Um, and that's just one. There's other kinds of no plays. There's no plays that are based in the present. There's no plays that are um, that are about possession and exorcisms. They're very exciting Ex exorcism ritual. Um, no plays like Aoi no Wei or Dojoji, um, the serpent, um, a, a story about a, a woman who turns into a fiery serpent um, because of angry jealousy. Those plays are actually the most fun for a foreigner to see because they're they're exciting and and spectacular. But the plays that I tend to to be interested in have a lot more complicated poetry and a lot more layered quality to them. <clears throat> they tend to be tend to be these simpler dream vision knows. Did that is that an oh? There's always a chorus alongside. Um, the chorus doesn't. It's not like a Greek chorus where they speak. Um, where they comment on the action, they tend to be speaking for the characters, especially when the characters are dancing, the main character is dancing, the chorus speaks for the character. And it's kind of this very strange first person, third person confusion, which is possible because classical Japanese doesn't clearly distinguish between first and third person. Um, and then there's musicians along the back. Along the back. Um, there's usually two or three drummers and a flute player. Um, no, not like kabuki where there's a shamisen player or any kind of or, or um, any kind of stringed instrument. It's all drum and flute. Um, so it's it's a very different kind of sound than people are used to if they're used to listening to Japanese shamisen, for example. Um, and there's also minor characters, often played by kyogen actors, who are the comedic version of uh, performance. Um, and sometimes you get child actors um, in there as well. But um, I think that is that, does it, as I said, it's all chanted. Um, and another interesting thing about it, but no, let's just leave it at that. Okay. Well, it certainly sounds very exciting from your description. Um, I've never seen a no play when I was in Japan, but I heard this joke that um, uh, my, my Japanese friends were telling me, if you have insomnia, you should go to a no play so <laughs> that you can actually get some sleep because it's so slow. But we know, um, well, Dr. Pennington, Dr. No Pennington kept telling me that was not the case. 
Yeah, I in the medieval could, I don't know how anyone could sleep through that piercing, uh, that piercing flute. It is so loud. It would just. I would think, but the whole point of of some stories in No is that it that there's actually like for example Dojoji, the whole middle part of Dojoji is supposed to be inducing a trance on the people on it's a dance performed to induce a trance. Um and in fact it's that's it's it's absolutely riveting. It doesn't it doesn't induce trance at all. But I have had Japanese friends who go to know and would sort of drift off and say and and claim that they would best understand that they got the dream vision effect of no precisely because they were slightly they were falling asleep during it. I don't know. <laughs> that sounds like a great um, way to be immersed. But, but, but as I said, you know, one of the reasons why um, it didn't bother me that I, there was long periods of time where uh, nothing seemed to be happening on stage was because I was drawing. Um, and that enabled me to sort of push through that boredom that people experience when they first see no, and they don't understand what the chorus is saying, and they don't, and then nothing appears to be happening on stage. Um, so I was lucky that way. Um, I had a way through. And then once I really understood the literature and the literary aspects of it, um, it was fine. Um, I just... I. I love no. And oh, the other real thing that most people in the audience in a no play, most people in the audience study no. They study the chanting, utai, and they study the dance performance, the shimai. And so they come to a no performance, maybe of their, of their teacher, right? They come to it having studied the chanting and the dance, right? So it's a completely different experience because they're watching a professional actor chant and dance, something that they know that they perform themselves. Um, and I think that is a really different experience. Um, and it makes it a lot more interesting. There are also people who are, you see in the audience, who, are, who have a libretto in their hand, which is called the Nitaibono, a chanting book. And they're actually just sort of looking down at the libretto and then looking up and looking down at the libretto and looking up. And I think they're not experiencing it quite as, as well, but um, but I think there is this wonderfully immersive quality to being in a no play, watching or watching a no play, particularly if you've actually studied it, the the performance of it, and that's something that's so unusual as a performance art. Truly, how many performance arts are there? Traditions are there in the world where you can study how to do it? Right, you can study the chanting and the dance. It's it's undoubtedly not exactly like it was, you know, in 1400 or 1500 or 1600. But nevertheless, you know, you can study it. It's a continuous performance tradition. And, and that's an amazing thing. And some of my best experiences in Japan were studying um, various, you know, studying the plays that I, that I actually worked on. I learned all the plays that I worked on. That is amazing. And hopefully after our listeners read well listen to this episode and read your book, when they go to a not play, they can always they can um try to identify these little um elements that you mentioned. Well nowadays too, if you go to the a National No Theater, they actually have English subtitles in the the chair in front of you. Right. When I went first, there was nothing. There was nothing. We didn't even have, there wasn't even any English translations um, of the plays that I was watching. But now they've got subtitles. 
And so it's it's very much like watching opera in Italian. You can you can see what's going on as you're watching it very easily. It's a completely different, a much better experience, I think. Yeah, that's very nice. So the center of your argument in this book is allegory.、Mm-hmm. Um, I've read a lot of scholars of Japanese literature talking about allegory in poetry, and since poetry existed almost everywhere in pre-modern Japanese literature, it inevitably appeared in all plays as well. Since they drew, since、uh, no place drew inspiration from literature,、mm-hmm. so can you talk about what kinds of poetry, and more importantly, what elements of such poetry would appear in no place, and how does how did these poems or their composers use allegory when then when they get、uh, when they got incorporated into these no place where they used. In similar ways, when they、um, comparing to the original poems. Okay, so I'm really interested in this this、um, idea that you or that what you said about、um, having read a lot of scholars of Japanese literature talking about allegory and poetry, and I think that's because you're a Bunjin specialist. <laughs> because believe、oh. me. When, especially when I was getting started in this, in the in you know the far reaches of time, the 1980s. Nobody was talking about allegory in poetry, or no. In fact, it was very much the opposite.、Um, new criticism was still the dominant way of thinking about、um, about poetry and literature. And even as we moved into、um, post-structuralist or post-modern post-structuralist, sorry, not post-modern deconstructionist and post-structuralist ways of thinking about poetry and literature, there still was this very strange kind of. Push against historicism, right? Which made it difficult to think about allegory. It really did, and so that was the situation that I was in in the eighties. It's very different from the situation today. Completely different world.、Um, and so, really, I felt compelled in my dissertation to spend the whole first chapter, and actually, I spent my entire one of my entire qualifying exams、um, on sort of creating this、uh, genealogy of the symbiotic relationship of. Of allegory and symbol, and how、um, allegory became devalued and symbol got pushed up, and then how, at the moment when、um, it's uh, it's really、um, the rhetoric of temporality, right?、Um, that that this really very famous essay that reverses that allegory symbol、um, valuation, and it's at that moment actually that allegory becomes sort of preeminent trope of trope and symbol. Gets pushed to the side in post-structuralist, and then obviously in、um, new historicist、um, thinking, because symbolism tends to be universal.、Um, it tends its its、uh, its appeal is that it's universal. Its appeal is that you can easily understand it without having to know a lot of very specific details.、Um, whereas allegory demands historical context. It demands an understanding of the religious. And political, and economic, and social situation in which a, a play or piece of po- a poetry is performed, and that really is very,、uh, very different.、Um, and so, I mean, really, my dissertation was a polemical argument for that.、Um, and on some level, I'm, st- although the situation is completely different, new historicism and、um, uh, is uh, really came to the forefront of literary history in. And literary literary history as a field became very dominant.
um, if, if in the pre-modern field um, by the 90s, right? So when I pub- even when I published my book, uh, Allegories of Desire, um, in 2003, it was already almost point past the point where you needed to even make an argument for allegory. Um, nevertheless, I feel like, felt like in this book as well, I needed to actually talk about how allegory in Japanese literature, especially poetry, um, and in no, is in some ways significantly different from allegory as it is understood in Western literature. And I wanted to make an argument for allegory as a trope that, that you know, that made sense for Japanese literature. Um, so that said... Uh, another big difference between Western, a big difference between Western allegory and Japanese allegory um, is that Western allegory um, and allegorical uh, allegory really develops an allegoresis, allegorical commentary, develops in kind of a reverse order. Um, allegorical commentary comes into existence in biblical exegesis, where um, New Testament scholars are trying to make sense of Old, the Old Testament and trying to bring it into, uh, make them work together. And to do that, they have to use alleg- allegorical readings that we would, that clearly did not make sense in terms of the original meanings of the text, right? Um, and then from the development of allegorical commentaries, we then moved to political and re- we moved to religious allegory in, in, um, in texts, in fiction or in other kinds of texts. Um, so it's kind of a, it doesn't work quite. In Japanese literature, we start with political and religious allegory. And allegorical commentaries do not come into existence until the medieval period. So it's also a kind of reversal. It doesn't quite work the same way. But we clearly have examples of political and religious allegory in the 9th and 10th century, in the Kokin Wakashu, for example, the first imperial poetic anthology. We also see it in, in the, very much in the Manyoshu, which is the previous large collection of of Japanese poetry. Um, and so you'll get a religious allegory. Um, for example, William O'Fleur, uh, in one of his articles on um, Buddhism in Japanese literature, gives an example of um, a poem that's really a witty allegory on the Lotus Sutra, which was the preeminent sutra, Buddhist sutra in the Heian period. This is the, um, the 8th to 11th centuries, 9th to 11th centuries in Japan. Um, and there's this notion in the Lotus Sutra of the three vehicles, the three, you know, vehicles that will get you to enlightenment, right? And it also has this parable called about the, the burning house um, and uh, another parable called the impartial rain, right? And so all of these, uh, these tropes, these, these stories are everybody in this period would know what the three vehicles were. They'd know the impartial rain. They would understand that in relation to Lotus Sutra. So we have a woman who's going with a bunch of friends to go hear a Lotus Sutra lecture, right? Um, and they go in se- the three of them go in separate carriages, but then there's some kind of huge rainstorm and something happened to the other two carriages and they all had to climb into the same carriage, the one carriage, and they reach the hall successfully. Right? And in the Lotus Sutra, the idea is that there's three possible vehicles to enlightenment, but only one vehicle is the Mahayana vehicle, the big vehicle, the one that's going to actually get you there. Right? And so you should believe in the Mahayana, the, the great vehicle. And so they write a poem that says, our party rode out in three vehicles 
but all of us got dampened in the impartial rain. So it's a joke, right? Um, it's a it's a joke. It's a witty joke, but it completely depends on your understanding, on a pre on an understanding of the Lotus Sutra, which anybody reading the poem would have known, right? But you, listen to how long it took me to explain the poem. <laughs> That's the problem with religious allegory. That's the problem with allegory is it takes this extraordinary apparatus of explanation for someone who doesn't just know off the top of their head what the Lotus Sutra is in order to make it for it. And by the time you're finished, does it seem funny? <laughs> Probably not, right? So this is my entire book. It's nothing but footnotes <laughs> explaining complicated puns and trying to set the historical context for it. So yes, it's, it's you know, you, some people are going to say, okay, stop. But there's so there's religious allegory, and then there's also political allegory. And political allegory tended to be, "Hey, I want a promotion," or "Hey, I'm a you know a, a court poet working for this patron, and I want to celebrate a special that you know their birthday or somebody's coming of age ceremony, and I'm going to write an allegorical poem that refers to it through you know various kinds of natural images, and maybe it'll get me preference, <laughs> you know, maybe it'll get me a promotion." Um, so there's that kind of political allegory as well. And that's everywhere. You see it everywhere in, in the, the, the classic, the Heian period. What's different when you get to the medieval period is you start getting allegorical commentaries. And these are these very strange um, commentaries, which were influenced by a heretical, which, uh, well, I, it's, it was, became heretical. But at the time, it, when they first developed, they, it was not heretical, right? The sect of Shingon Buddhism um, that basically argued that um, you could achieve enlightenment through sex. <laughs> and it did this, and it, it, it was promoted by someone named Fujiwara Tamiyaki, who lived in the late um, 13th century. Um, he was a Shingon priest, and he was a member of the Fujiwara family of poetry, the foremost poetry family at the time. But he was kind of pushed out of his patrimony because his mother wasn't favored um, by his father, Fujiwara Tamiie. So he goes off to Kamakura and creates this whole elaborate initiation system and all of these allegorical readings of Tales of Ise and the Kokin Wakashu, which initiate you into these secret meanings and the religious meanings of that. The, and Tales of Ise, I should say, is um, a poem tale that follows the man of old, right? which very soon after it was written was understood to be a particular person, Adiwara no Narihira, who, was, who lived in the ninth century. And it was understood as a kind of secret biography of all of his relationships with women and the poetry that he wrote in terms of all these secret relationships with women. Um, and so the commentary comes in, these allegorical commentaries come in in the 13th century and say, oh, Narihira just isn't a ladies man and a great, great, great poet. Um, he's actually the Bodhisattva of song and dance. He's the he's a manifestation of the Kami of Yin and Yang, i.e., of sex. He's the he's actually ultimately Dainichi Nyorai, the ultimate deity of Shingon Buddhism. And if we just initiate you and you pay lots and lots of money, if you initiate you into these higher and higher levels of esoteric, you know, understanding, you will understand the true meaning of Tales of Ise. Right. <laughs> This is the crazy stuff that I saw I got really, really interested in. And, you know, these commentaries were very secret for about 100 years. 
and then they start disseminating out into the into the world into the they start becoming less secret the the sect which is known now as Tachikawa but probably wasn't the same as the actual Tachikawa sect at the time but anyway it's easier to just call it the Tachikawa sect um it was declared heretical um and so basically what happens by but but these commentaries are used by no act, no composers um, to write plays. And Konrad Zenchiku, who's the sort of central composer in my in my book, he really was interested in these commentaries, and he was very interested in the methodology that they used. And so my argument really is that um, Zenchiku uses that methodology of allegoresis as a mo- means of composing the no plays. And if you understand his way of if you understand that methodology um, and that worldview, that understanding of how the signifier-signified relationship works, um, that the relationship between the signifier and signified is not arbitrary, which is what everybody posts <laughs> in the, the 20th century believes, right? Linguistics has taught us that the signifier, the word and its referent are, 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 are arbitrary. Their relationship is arbitrary. If you believe that it's non-arbitrary, and that if you you can analyze kanji or puns or visual images to show that they they will actually analyze a kanji into its component parts, it will tell you something about the true reality, something really important about the the world. Um, and you can see that way of thinking um, it, for Zenchiku, both in one of his most um, important commentaries, from my perspective, Meishukushu, where he uses that methodology really extensively, and then in his plays. I think I've gone sort of all around and off and down. But the point here is that in the ham period, you've got this straightforward political and religious allegory. It gets very interesting and strange in the medieval period. Religious commentaries have a very important influence. I, I argue that these allegorical commentaries have an important influence on a certain subset of no plays. Um, but the other problem here for political allegory, well, actually, I'll finish that other thought first. But the religious the problem with the religious allegory influence on the no plays is that that religious stuff, the Shingo and Tachikawa, is declared heretical. And by the Edo period, it's pretty much suppressed. Right. And in the modern period, nobody wants to have anything to do with it. They don't want to even they really like they sort of just don't want to admit that it exists. Right. And it is only with the 1960s with Mitani Kuniaki and then Ito Masayoshi who really bring these commentaries back out and say, look, at this is everywhere in the medieval period. This kind of thinking is not just in these weird allegorical commentaries. You see it in religious texts of all kinds. Because what they were trying to do with those allegorical, this allegoresis, this methodology, is they're trying to bring together Shingon Buddhism or Buddhism generally, um, uh, yin yang, omyodo, you know, and kami worship, what's now known as Shinto, right? And they're trying to bring these into congruence and allegorical methodology, this allegorical methodology really works to do that, right? Um, so basically what Ito Masayoshi says is, hey, look at these commentaries are there. And then my whole book is trying to understand how it works. Right. Um, um, and there's other people who've done this. 
So I'm talking a really, really long time for this one question, but I got to go back to talk about political allegory. And the problem with political allegory is that most of, um, so we understand how religious allegory was erased from these plays. Um, and new criticism, especially, was really disliked allegory. So it was not interested in trying to find allegory in the plays because, you know. Um, the uh, But political allegory, the problem with political allegory is that the plays were, they were almost undoubtedly written for specific patrons in specific performance contexts, right? And we, and they almost undoubtedly had very, probably had very specific political um, points, but because they've been lifted out of that historical context and we have so little information about when a play was first performed and who it was composed by, it's almost impossible to figure out what the political meaning of the play was. And as it happens, that you know, the two plays that are absolutely clear, at least from my perspective, um, are Oshio, which we know was performed in, we just happen to know, was open, was first performed in 1465 by Zenchiku, right, before Ashikaga Yoshimasa, right? We know the exact moment it was written, who it was performed for, and who it was composed by. And that enables us to read it politically, right? Um, and another play that I talk about is Hakuraku Ten, maybe by Zayami, probably written by Yoshimasa's, uh, probably written for uh, Ashikaga uh, Yoshinori um, in about 1420-21, after, uh, again, aimed at a specific political events that happened. Right? Um, but this is, it's very unusual for us to know when and where a play was written. So erasing the politics was very easy. And when they, these plays are moved into the Edo period, there was a lot of reason to erase the politics. You wanted to take that play and make it universal. You didn't, you want, and in the case of Oshio, it's really interesting. Oshio was originally performed under the title Ohara no Hanami, or flower viewing, um, cherry blossom viewing at Ohara no. And it was performed four months after, it was a command performance before Ashikaga Yoshimasa, right? The most, the, the most powerful shogun, the, the shogun, right? It was performed four months after Yoshimasa and his entire entourage had done this extraordinarily spectacular and very, very, very expensive cherry blossom viewing procession that ended at Ohara no Shrine, right? And so Zenshiku very, very cleverly uses a story from Tales of Issei um, about Ariwara no Narihira and his lover um, Fujiwara no Takaiko right, who was the Nijo Empress at the time, but they supposedly had an illicit, illicit relationship when they were young. Um, he, he creates this play, um, which basically is a celebration of Yoshimasa's cherry blossom festival, uh, cherry blossom viewing procession, directly pointing to it in, um, in so many different ways. And we would never know that if we didn't know that it was performed four months after it. And two years, within two years, the Onin civil war happens. 10 years of horrific civil war destroys Kyoto. And Yoshimasa is very much blamed for this civil war, right? 
And the command performance in 1465 plus the cherry blossom viewing thing from four months are considered grave sins by Yoshimasa because of their extravagance. So not surprisingly, 10 years later, when the, the Komparu troupe, and this is now Zenchiku's grandson, wants to reinstate that play into the troupe repertoire, does he call it Ohara no Hanami? No, he does not. <laughs> he calls it Oshio. And he just tries to pretend it had nothing to do with Yoshimasa. And so, and that's basically the sort of trajectory for most of these no plays. Even if they had a political meaning originally, they've lost it. You know, we don't know what it is. And it just happens that because that particular command performance of the four main no troops um, happened to be so important that it got noted down in somebody's diary, we would never know. We would just wouldn't know. Um, but my argument is that if you can, that there are probably a number of other plays that we can figure this out for, that we can try to figure out the politics. But so that the allegory, both political and religious, just gets erased from no for various reasons. And my whole book is trying to reinstate um, the historical context for the plays, the religious context for the plays, and try to show how when we read them um, in those contexts, we actually can understand the plays in a way that, you know, otherwise they just seem to be kind of boring about cherry blossoms and the beneficence of a deity and who cares. <laughs> anyway, I'm trying to make them seem, I, I, well, I, I think they're more interesting <laughs> when we read them that way. I guess that's what I So what you said was absolutely fascinating. And I actually prepared these questions to connect the 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 different parts of your book but i i think your answer just uh made a perfect narrative for how the two uh more most important themes of your of allegory um worked throughout not only in the not plays but also the commentaries of it so i guess to move on to the next question um What I like most about your book is that you don't treat no simply as a piece of literary work, uh, nor as stage performance alone, but a part of the changing entity of texts that were influencing each other and taking inspirations from each other. Are there any changes from the early stage of no to later periods in how they use um, how they use other texts, how they incorporating commentaries? or even other no plays? So um, I think I sort of answered part of this in the, my previous answer, um, my rambling answer. But um, as I said, I think, I suspect most early no was written for um, a specific patron in a specific performance context. And over time, those contexts were erased. Um, and then the plays sort of float free of their historical origins. Um, but that was um, extremely useful for the Tokugawa family in the Edo period. And the Tokugawa um, basically became the patrons for the, they designated four major no troops and then they added the Kita school as well. Um, and that, so there became five major no troops that um, that really, they that they patronized and supported. But part of that you know, patronage was that they were not interested in political um, at pretty much all the plays that were clearly political, right? Anything that really looked obviously political, that was dropped. They were dropped from the repertoire. 
and even things that were even slightly tinged with politics got dropped. So it was very important that these plays be modified or changed or smooth. All their rough edges or allegorical by edges were were smoothed out um, so that, you know, the little things that might tickle your ear, like Narikira is the Bodhisattva of Kami and Yin and Yang. Where did that come from? Just sort of smoothly flows over you. Um, because the Tokyo are really interested in using no as a kind of um, uh, 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 not ritual theater in the sense of a religious ritual, but like a political theater that would support them and support their ideology. Um, and so in, in that sense, no becomes this very elegant, very smooth. The performance aspects of it are standardized. Um, it starts uh, really in the late 16th century. It starts being it starts being taught that Utai and Shimai, the dance, chanting and dance begins to be taught to to patrons, to, to audience members, non-professional people. Um, and uh, and so it becomes important to standardize the performance um, among, and the troops also need to sta- want to standardize their performances um, so that they distinguish between the two different, the different kinds of, of, of troops. And people, uh, Eric Rath wrote a, a book called Ethos of No, and uh, Thomas Loser also wrote a book um, about these, uh, about the Edo period development of No, um, and um, anyway, uh, there's there's a number of other people who worked on the Edo period, um, and most of the uh, the texts that we have now and the um, the texts that tell us what the performance aspects of it too are from the Edo period. So, you know, the, we're, we're performance people were 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 kind of sort of trapped in that period. Um, it's one reason why, and then. Um, in the modern period, there becomes uh, there becomes a you know a, an, uh, you know there's a, a movement towards these plays that are um, that that again just, there's no interest in plays that have any kind of political content really. Um, it's possible that a play like Hakurakuten, which uh, foregrounds the Sumiyoshi deity as the martial defender of Japan <laughs> against uh, Baijui, who is the foremost Chinese poet, um, there's some possibility that that play might have been used as propaganda <laughs> um, in the early 20th century, but um, but most people don't want to talk about that. <laughs> and in the early, uh, you know, in the in the post-war years, Akurakuten becomes a, sort of goes back to being just a, a, a poetry contest as opposed to having any kind of martial aspects to it, even though Akurakuten. And Hakurakuten, the Sumiyoshi Daimyojin, blows Bojui back to, to China with a kamikaze, you know, a divine wind, along with all the other Japanese deities. <laughs> and proves the superiority of Japanese verse over Chinese. Um, so, yes, there's a little xenophobia there. Very surprising, actually, given how important um, Bojui is to um, Japanese literary history and poetry and how beloved he was. And that's actually one of the reasons that I got interested in Hakurakuten is because, um, and there's other Japanese scholars before me who absolutely have thought Hakurakuten had to be political. I'm not the first person who thought this at all, um, but it seems very odd. And so oftentimes your instinct towards understanding allegory really comes, or looking for allegory comes from something that doesn't make sense in the play, that there needs to be an explanation for this. Um, and that's exactly what the earliest scholars who were interested in this, including the historian from the early 20th century, 
said, no, this is, this is the 1419 invasion of, of, um, um, uh, Tsushima, um, by the Koreans, um, and the defense of, of, um, the defense of, um, they were raiding a bandit, um, a Wako pirate base, um, in, in, uh, Tsushima. And, that's what this play is actually about, because um, it happened, the con- you know, simultaneously with the Chinese envoy appearing um, off the coast of Osaka, um, and everybody thought the Mongol invasions were happening again. Um, and so, in fact, Hakurako Ten is this kind of lighthearted. After everything went away, after everything was resolved, um, after every it turned out to be a teapot, teapot, not tempest in a teapot. After all that was over, then they're like, "Oh, let's do this kind of funny no play, making fun of the whole thing." <laughs> um, and that's, you know, but again, nobody would have thought about Hakurakuten as being political allegory, you know, for, it was performed for hundreds of years. Um, and nobody thought of it as political allegory. Um, so am I answering your question? <laughs> yes, no, that's, yes, yes. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, um, but I, I guess my basic point is that, up, you know, up until fairly recently, and there's a lot of, there's no Japanese scholar and there's almost no Western scholar now who doesn't think about historical context. You know, what I thought I was doing that was unusual in the 80s is not even slightly unusual now. If everyone does it. Um, so, you know, it's lovely for you to say that what I work do is innovative, but I feel like, you know, <laughs> I'm right there with everyone else. <laughs> Doing, but it just happened to have a particular approach or a particular topic that has been very, very rich. Yeah, but I, I, I think um, so. I absolutely loved your approach, and I, I, you mentioned this in your book too that um, there was this uh, period of well, there were periods of different theoretical approaches were mainstream, which I thought didn't. Well, I personally don't like those kind of um, seasonal trends mm-hmm. because text, literature, or or no place, they're not closed. They cannot be fit into a seasonal fashion. But that's, yeah, that's exactly why I loved your book, though, because you didn't... Um, try to take the seasonal fashionable methodology and make it or let me go back a little bit you didn't absolutely follow the seasonal trends and I, I wouldn't want to say that my book isn't theoretically informed because it is very theoretically informed yes. but I didn't try but you're right I didn't try to um, follow any particular theory um, and make that the focus I the thing about theory is that um, it's very useful for understanding text, but you always have to read it against the grain because, um, of course, most theory is developed in the West, and we're talking about pre-modern Japanese literature. So it's gonna you're gonna have to read it against the grain no matter what. Um, and I think that's just true about all. Um, it's all about all theory. It's just how we have to we have to really, and 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 I did try to interrogate. Um, the theories that I use, I think it's very important that we understand our particular moment um, and what our actual theoretical presuppositions are so that we don't let them take over um, the object of our interest. It's almost impossible to not do that, but it's good to try to at least make an effort, right, to try to figure out where we are theoretically so that 
um, we we can see the object of our um, of our gaze at least as clearly as we can possibly can. And the other thing is that um, the texts that I'm dealing with, especially the allegorical commentaries and the religious um, backing of them, are so excruciatingly difficult and complicated that if you added just another layer of theory on top of it, they would be impossible. So, you know, that made, for, for me, part of my job and part of my job has been pretty much my entire career is making these commentaries, these allegorical commentaries actually make sense to people that they, that they weren't just gobbledygook, that it wasn't just nonsense, that there was actually, there was a reason for them that they made sense in their time and that you can understand what the person who was writing them was trying to achieve. Now that's authorial intent, but you can't do, you can't do new historicism. You can't do historical context without, at least, uh, to a certain extent, trying to under- recover what what people meant by what they were writing. Um, uh, so, you know, it's just important to understand where you are vis-a-vis those theoretical um, undercurrents and the theoretical fashions of the day. Um, but I, you can't ignore them, and I'm I, I worry that a lot of pre-modern scholars just say, "Oh, I don't have to deal with that because I'm working on pre-modern." I think it's best to really try to situate yourself vis-a-vis theory and then but then you don't have to be overly dictated by it. You just have to need to be able to understand how you're using it. And that was my goal. Yeah. I absolutely agree. And actually I usually uh save a big loaded question at the end for my guests, but you have already covered that. So let me just end this conversation with a quick, small one. Which not play is your favorite? Okay, so I'm just obviously Kaki Tabata, the Iris. It's okay. my favorite. It's the first play that I translated. I have been teaching it for 30 plus years. I teach it every year in Bungo. Whenever I teach classical Japanese, I, I teach Kaki Tabata, which my students are not always that happy about. I know it so, so very well. And when I've learned, I've learned the Shima, I've learned the Utai of the entire play. When I go to see, when I've seen Kakitsubata performed, and whenever I'm in Japan, I try to see it someplace. Um, and it's a very popular play, so it's not impossible to see. It, I really feel like because I know that play so very well, I'm having that kind of immersive experience that somebody in the audience in the, in the medieval period would have had. I understand what they're saying as they're chanting it. I understand how the movement relates to the performance. I understand how this actor is doing it slightly different from that actor. It's an extraordinarily lovely thing to be able to do. And I can only do it with a, a very few plays. Oshio is another one. Hakuraku Ten is another one because I've translated them and I know them really, really well. Unimin. Um, but but um, but to be able to do that is just is such a huge pleasure. And also, Kakitsubata is just an. Ex- I was very very lucky to translate that as my first play. It is an extraordinarily beautifully written. There is nothing in. It's got to be one of his last plays. It is one of the most perfectly written no plays that there is. It's just there's nothing out of place. Everything is everything connects to everything else and everything builds on it. Um, and so 
like I said, I was very lucky that that was the first play I translated. If I translated, you know, something else, I would have been, I might not have been so pulled into it. Um, and it's still absolutely my favorite play. And it's a lovely play. It's about an iris. <laughs> it focus, it's very strange. It focuses on an iris who believes, a non-sentient plant, who is, uh, who, uh, um, who nevertheless appears as a, as a beautiful young woman and is, has become obsessed with her um, position as the foremost flower representing Nariwara and Narihira because she was an important part of one of his most famous poems. And she's absolutely like, everybody should be paying attention to me. <laughs> My deep purple color is the most important deep purple color. Pay no attention to all those other female flowers. You know, it's me, me, me. And the arc of the play is that by reenacting story as a bodhisattva and the ultimately Dainichi Nodai, she understands that her position as an iris is not to be the, the emblem of his you know, passionate attachment, but that in fact, she can also achieve enlightenment and along with all the other plants and grasses, take them with her to enlightenment which is just a lovely, very strange, but very lovely idea that the, the, the nature is also, a, you know, is also, it's also possible for nature to be enlightened and to bring us with it um, to enlightenment. Um, and it, the, the poetry, the extraordinarily complicated poetry, the multi-level punning, and I haven't really talked about that. That was the one thing I haven't talked about here. It's just the extraordinary punning and the level of, of, uh, analysis that has to go into these multiple layers of of puns, which you know doesn't really exist except it, it exists to a certain extent in like Shakespeare, for example, in medieval literature. But um, but it really is a special, special, special point um, for no, and makes it a, a absolute it, for for composers for plays where the composer like Senshiku is really good at it. It's very very fun. Um, it makes the analysis very fun, especially for somebody like me who loves puzzles. I've always loved puzzles. Um, and so that unlocking and unraveling, you can see me doing it in the book. Oh, yeah. Oh, look at this. Oh, look at this. Oh, look at this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's truly this. amazing. And um, it's a very I, exciting process. Yes. And I, it definitely comes through. I, I was just listening to you talk about it. I was just so amazed by your, your passion and enthusiasm about these no plays. And I think it definitely comes out through your book as well. Oh, I'm so glad that you got yes. that from it. Because yes. some, of it, some of it was not so much fun. Like, but most of it, all the analysis of the play. Some of the analysis of the commentaries was kind of hard. But the analysis of the no plays was just pure pleasure. That was yes. just so much fun to do. And I'm That's really awesome. very happy that I got to do it. And I hope I get to do more of it in the future. Yes, <laughs> yes. I'm definitely looking forward to reading more of it. Great. And thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. And for our listeners to learn more about Allegory and Japanese Not Place, check out Susan Klein's Dancing the Dharma, Religious and Political Allegory in Japanese North Theater. This is Jingyi from New Books on Japanese Studies. I will see you in our next episode.